0: Friday Lunchtime Lectures at the Open Data Institute. Good afternoon. Welcome to today's uh, Lunchtime Lecture. It's my pleasure to welcome Errol Fox today. Errol was, until recently, the lead designer at Ushahidi. Uh, Today's talk will focus on building humanitarian tools using open source, what the challenges are and how you can overcome them. Um, There will be questions at the end. Using this microphone, please be aware, audience members, your voice will not be um, made louder by the microphone, it just means that people watching can hear you. Okay, so I will hand over to Errol. Cool,
1: thank you. Okay, so uh, thanks for having me here to talk about uh, these this project that I've been working on with, with O'Shahidi over the last uh, six to eight months. Uh, so... It's about using open source for building humanitarian tools and the challenges from those who don't code. So we'll dig into that in a little bit more depth throughout the talk. But what I'd like you to keep in mind is that my role within Ushahidi was as the lead designer. And my focus was largely on the design side of things. But a lot of the things that I talk around, um, talk about around design are actually largely applicable to anybody who doesn't really do the coding part of technology. So if you identify as somebody that doesn't primarily code or doesn't code at all, but still interested in building technology, whether it's open source or not, these things can also apply to you. So, me, I'm Errol. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. If you want to like refer to me on any of the social medias or anything like that, please use those pronouns. I'm a humanitarian designer now. Um, my experience is around 10 years in digital product design and UX. So I've been doing that in commercial companies and corporate companies, as well as most recently, open source humanitarian technology and nonprofit. Um, but my experience within humanitarian and nonprofit sector um, is actually more like seven years. So I've been doing things within the, the community development nonprofit sector for around seven years uh, on a volunteer basis. But as far as the open source or FOSS or OSS space, it's more like two years since my time at Ushahidi. If any of these terminologies are things that you're unfamiliar with, I've tried to make this presentation like the... The level that I entered the open source world with. So I try and explain these things as clearly as possible um, and go on the assumption that you don't know about these kinds of uh, terminologies, this kind of jargon. Some of it might be familiar to some of you, but please bear with, um, bear with me and the rest of the audience just in case other people are learning these terms for the first time. So FOSS is a free and open source software, an OSS or OSS not often called OS is open source software. I'm also getting over a bit of a cold as well, so if I clear my throat and I'm a bit croaky every now and then, please bear with me. Uh, So a little bit about Ushihidi, in case you're unfamiliar with them. Uh, So I was their lead designer until very recently, working on a number of different projects. And Ushihidi, they were founded in 2007-2008, and this was around the Kenyan election violence that was was happening there. So they're a Kenyan open source humanitarian tech company. They were actually founded by bloggers. Uh, The bloggers were seeing the election violence happen in their country, and they wanted to do something about it. And they'd never really built technology before, but they decided that one of the things that they could do to combat election violence in Kenya was build a crowdsourcing platform for reporting. So basically, people in the rural areas of Kenya were experiencing some of the worst violence and they were also having like their voices suppressed around the things that were happening. So whether it was violence or whether it was intimidation or whether it was um, ballot box tampering, anything to do with the election, this new crowdsourcing platform, which was called uh, the Ushihidi, platform was used to map those kinds of things and there were like a data view uh, to do with these uh, reports and also a map view because at the time it was really important to see visually on a map where things were happening with regards to election violence. That was the first time Ushahidi was built and used in a a case. Um, It's actually been used in lots of different ways over the many many years since its its, um, origin. So it's been used in lots of different democracy cases so anything from various different elections from to like in Kenya still in eastern Europe in South America in the U.S. as well there was a uh, Ushahidi data collection Uh, we call them deployments within Ushahidi there was one that was created after the Trump elections to map um, hate speech and to see whether things increased or decreased or stayed the same or whether people were more willing to um, Report incidences of uh, hate crime after those elections, but it's also been used in lots of other cases. So, the concept of data collection and crowdsourcing data collection from citizens was uh, something that could be used in lots of different cases. Um, in this case on the slide, this is a uh, deployment that was created shortly, shortly before the Nepal earthquakes. And what was happening with this deployment was a number of different community groups, volunteer groups, were using the data collection platform to map as uh, things were happening when the Nepal earthquake was going to hit. So they got the the, um, word that an earthquake was going to happen and they created the deployment and they started to mobilise information from citizens around what was happening at, as the earthquake was happening. So they could more effectively like understand what was happening from like a citizen level. So as people were experiencing road closures or trees being felled, citizens were sending in photos of that um, on their street. And this was actually uh, used by the Nepalese army uh, for where they sent their relief effort. So it's a real example for crisis response as opposed to say election elections, um, in how citizen led data And enabling citizen-led data can can actually help um, an incident, basically. So rather than a top-down approach, which is often what a lot of relief aid organisations rely on, they go in, they do their assessments, and they decide what is needed in certain scenarios. This is with the crisis scenario. Instead, there's a citizen-led approach, whereas this is happening right now. And also take this data into consideration and take my experience into consideration as well. So... On the, on the subject of all the different ways in which the data collection platform for Ishihidi has been used, so there's election violence, there's crisis response from any kind of natural disaster or even human-made disasters sometimes as well. Um, so you're talking terrorist attacks and things like that. Internet shutdowns sometimes as well. Um, But also things like um, mapping street harassment. There is a usage of Ushahidi in Egypt, which was called HarassMap, where a group of women uh, wanted to document and find out where harassment was happening on the streets. And as a result of using an open source tool like Ushahidi's data collection platform, they were actually able to constitute as a a non-profit themselves, and are now doing further work within the the harassment space. I don't think I take questions throughout the... <laughs> but after, at the end, for sure. Um, so Ushahidi has created lots of different tools, um, primarily open source tools, not always open source, but primarily open source. The other example on the screen right now is a, a recently gone open source and was open sourced for this project. And this is a crisis communication tool called Tem4. And this was a created within another scenario, uh, so not election violence this time, but there was a terrorist attack on the Westgate Mall in, in Nairobi in Kenya. And what happened during that terrorist attack was that we had, as Ishihidi, as Ishihidi employees, we had a um, knowledge that one of our staff members and the staff members' families were was in that mall at the time. And... Previous to these kinds of tools, you might find this uh, scenario a little bit familiar when you're trying to get in contact with somebody, maybe you're meeting up for dinner or something like that, but what we tried to do was we tried to text, we tried to call, we tried all the different communication methods, then we went to the communication methods of people that we thought might know where that person is. And that scenario is somewhat familiar when you're trying to get in contact with someone, you're trying to find out whether they're responding, but imagine it within the scenario of a terrorist attack or or some kind of crisis. So this tool didn't exist before that, but as a result of that incident, Ushahidi wanted to create a tool that would make that process easier. So understanding whether people were safe, uh, what kind of communication method people had access to at the time, um, based off of like connectivity or access to SMS uh, cell towers. We created this tool that aggregates all these different communication methods and essentially is a tool for making sure that you can keep in contact with people when you need to. So, moving on from what Ishihidi has done in the past, I'm going to be talking about these open source humanitarian tools and these challenges around building with open source and humanitarian in mind. So, if you are unfamiliar with the term open source software, or what open source software is, it can mean a few different kinds of things. But essentially, it's a tool or a project. So they've sort of it's sort of expanded over the many years into not just actual code and software that runs, but sometimes projects that are based off of open source principles. So things to do with like uh, toolkits that are written toolkits and things to use like that. But essentially, it's a uh, tool or a project that is under some kind of open licensing. So that's either something to do with like creative commons licensing or MIT licensing and things like that. It typically indicates something that you can use for free in some way, but also adapt and change in your own ways to make it more useful to you as an organization or you as an individual, or even to learn how, how that piece of software works or, or practice a skill, uh, to a particular coding skill. The tricky thing about open source and one of the, actually, one of the first problems and one of the first barriers within using open source, especially within a humanitarian case, is even though it's free and open, it's out there to look at, to use, to download, there are often technical barriers to those things. So having an understanding of how something is built or at the very least understanding the jargon to which, the technical jargon to which things are referred to as. So having even a a lower level or a kind of loath to say lower level but even a basic level of what the kind of terminology is used within coding languages is often needed and even the uh, need to have a github account which is where a lot of open source projects live is in github or gitlab which is basically a website that hosts a lot of different open source projects and closed projects as well so ones that you can't use for free but it's basically where those things live and a lot of people don't have accounts on those kinds of sites anyway because they're they're predominantly coder spaces or at least regarded as coder spaces but yeah essentially open source is these free to use open projects that people are actively participating in usually as a community as well so if you want to learn a little bit more about open source, I don't want to go into too much depth about both my understanding of open source and the general understanding of open source. There are some resources here, opensource.com, opensource.org, and there's a great article from Red Hat around what is open source, like for a basic understanding of open source and its history. But yet one of the other characteristics of open source, which is one of the things that's most important about this project that I'm going to be talking about that we ran with Ishihidi is that it's often a collaborative community effort to build and improve it. And uh, this is often uh, the case for hardware as well. You can actually find open hardware projects, which are rarer to find and difficult to maintain and contribute to, but you can find them. But open source and contributing to open source is often how most people who code or most people who regard themselves as developers learn and share and mentor each other with either existing coding skills or new coding skills uh, and how they often give back to their kind of developer community so through that process it's kind of kind of become this space that is for that for those kind of coding communities or perceived as such And uh, I also want to stress, like with Ushihidi, uh, Ushihidi is a non-profit humanitarian tech company that makes open source stuff. Um, And while there are some open source projects, both humanitarian ones and not necessarily humanitarian ones, that have employed staff to work on open source, typically those projects, those open source tools, won't typically have a, uh, employee, employees, people that are getting paid for that. If they are getting paid, sometimes it's adho- on an ad hoc basis or a donation basis. Um, and often a lot of open source tools you know, are completely voluntary projects. So Ishihidi, uh, as an open source uh, organisation, well, an organisation that makes it some open source stuff, is kind of unique in that way as well, in that it has staff that looks after some of the open source side of things. And as I was entering Ushahidi as a previously commercial corporate designer, so as I said earlier on, my role is uh, that of a designer, UX design, visual design and product design in the digital space. As I was entering into this world of starting to build humanitarian tech products and starting to really learn what open source was and what it meant to me as a designer, I started to get more involved in the in the idea of open source, the community aspect, and started to try and understand what I, really I was building for. So as a designer, I was building not only a product that was, uh, you know, a digital product that I was very familiar in building with, but I was also building for this kind of community that I wasn't very much aware of, this kind of community of learning, community of mentoring, community of co-creating stuff that is sometimes... Uh, copied from over here as the main open source and taken over there and kind of, you know, changed a little bit by this community and then sometimes merged back into the the main source and kind of really trying to wrap my head around what this meant to me as somebody that didn't do that process but participated in that process in my way through design. And I started to wonder where other people like me were. So the designers or the marketeers, or anybody and everybody that's involved in creating digital products from potentially a commercial or corporate perspective. But within this open source community, where are the other people that are interested in learning about participating in the community building aspect of things, because I largely wasn't seeing other people like me, designers, and I wasn't seeing a lot of people that were doing anything other than participating within code and writing new code. Or if they were, they were very, very hard to find, very, very hard to see the volume to which uh, coders are present within open source. And like I said before, this is predominantly understood because it's a coding tech space. So there has to be this kind of understanding of how, or at least this um, uh, not a fearful uh, approach to terminology like cloning a repo, which was something that I was just a phrase that I was generally terrified of as a very new person in open source. I didn't really know what cloning a repo actually meant. Um, some of you may, some of you may not, but it's a uh, terminology which kind of isolates and excludes people that potentially really want to contribute to, again, a humanitarian open source project. So the first challenge really is, is how we view open source, Especially if we're participating in humanitarian contexts and trying to build projects, tech, technology projects that do good and trying to open them up, how this open source space is regarded by both the people that have participated in it for a long time, the coders, and also the people that are coming into it maybe through other means with other kinds of skills. I would even potentially go as far as to say, in my own opinion, that OSS has kind of a technical bias actually. So often, technical solutions to certain problems are prioritised within some open source uh, projects. And that sometimes the solutions to those kinds of problems within things like humanitarian projects, uh, humanitarian open source projects, don't necessarily always have to have a technical solution to them. But because this space is predominantly existing within this kind of coding space, that that that's the the knowledge base that, that people are... are are participating in so that's the kind of the first thing that often is is referred to we can solve this in a technological way whereas actually this might be a more of a understanding the problem kind of way and potentially it's a UX design problem or potentially it's a problem about access or potentially it's a hardware problem rather than a software problem things like that but I think that (coughs) When you're building any kind of open source project, whether it's a humanitarian one or not, you kind of have to have this understanding and responsibility to be actively including other kinds of functions within your project. Because it's very easy to find templates, it's very easy to find examples where those things aren't included, and it's easy to say that is the way that open source is done, but it actually can be done a lot more inclusively and a lot more uh, better when you actively include other functions. So this was a lot of what I was thinking about when I was working uh, with Inishihidi as as an employed member of staff working on these open source tools, trying to think, okay, you know, where is my space? Where are the other people like me? I'm experiencing this, and I'm thinking that this can be changed for the better. And I was thinking there must be other people like me. So we'd worked with Adobe for a number of uh, months uh, before we started uh, the first part of the project, that I'll go into so we've been working um, having conversations with Adobe uh, if you're unfamiliar with what Adobe is they create uh, software for designers so commercial software for designers to create designs with usually and lots of other different things uh, creative software and we were also in conversation and working with DesignIt, which is a global design agency. And they were actually doing a series of pro bono work for us as Ushahidi. They wanted to contribute back to Ushahidi as a tool with their design skills. And I was talking to these these two groups about my my experience as a designer within open source and within humanitarian open source. And I was like, there's got to be other people like me. And they suggested that one of the things that they could do as part of their pro bono work was try and organize some kind of design jam hackathon, some kind of event to collect these people and try and understand whether or not these people exist. I thought that they must and whether or not they wanted to group together and, and, and start actually actively contributing to different things. So we did uh, one event in Berlin in 2018 and one event in Seattle um, 2019 as part of Interaction, uh, the Interaction Design uh, Conference, the IXDA conference in Seattle and these were general kind of hackathon sort of rules if you're familiar with how a hackathon works we took one of Ushahidi's tools our 10-4 crisis communication tool we created a series of challenges um, loose challenges just information that people would need to know from a very basic level like what this tool does the different kinds of functions within it and what we ideally would like to see happen within this tools and kind of use cases that people might, might have. Like, so the example about the mall, we came up with a few other examples of uh, things that were related to Berlin and related to Seattle. So that the designers or the people that were coming to these events could better understand what they were trying to hack for or, or build for or contribute to, So the scenarios involved. And these were reasonably well attended. You know, forty to fifty people are our capacity uh, both times. And what it really proved to me was, yes, there are there are people out there that are interested in contributing that aren't the people that code. But funnily enough, uh, another piece of information about the attendees within this, they weren't just. Even though it was it, it was. Um, advertised as a design jam, a design hackathon for designers or people involved in the design process. We had product managers, we had people that could, would code, Android developers, general developers, anybody and everybody was welcome. But it just goes to show that people are interested in the part of the process of building tools that wasn't necessarily just contributing code to a specific thing that we, it was dictated within um, a set of tasks within the open source repo. So we started to really understand from these events that we did with Adobe and DesignIt that designers and other people as well, they want to work on projects for good. The thing that drew them to these events weren't necessarily the fact that they were open source, because open source is a A tricky conversation to have with a designer because when you talk about some traditional open source projects like Linux or Apache or uh, Things like that they sort of go mmm, but when you talk about humanitarian open source They think oh, yeah, okay I understand humanitarian, but I don't understand open source as much But they can understand the connection of humanitarian and wanting to, to use their design skills for good So we discovered that there was a huge amount of people that were interested in contributing specifically either to Ushahidi's humanitarian open source or humanitarian open source in general with their design skills. And there just wasn't this shared vocabulary, shared vocabulary and there wasn't this understanding of this, that this developer space, this, this space that was considered for people that can code, was open to other functions. And it sort of seems obvious to say that it is because it's open source. It's open by its very nature. But this kind of this uh, perception that it is this space for a particular kind of function was really embedded within a lot of different digital uh, functions. So we uh, created this project with Adobe and Adobe funded the Open Design Project over the last six months to uh, six to eight months. And we were working still very closely with designer, at the agency as well. And what we wanted to do is start to better understand some of the challenges in more depth by running more events and starting to understand whether or not you can get tangible contributions from designers, product managers, anything that technically isn't part of the coding side of things, whether you can start to get more tangible contributions to the code, the open source code. So it was born of these three organisations. They really, want, We all really wanted to make a difference in this open source space and start to investigate the design community, the perceptions within the design community, and how best to engage the design community specifically with this project within the open source space. And we wanted to build a set of tools, a set of um shared understanding and basically, you know, understand the way forward within within this space. We recognised that a lot of people wanted to participate in this, but they didn't necessarily have the avenues, the skills, the understanding the, and the opportunities to do that. And essentially, to understand what Open Design was trying to do, it was essentially designers collaborating and contributing to humanitarian OSS and tech for good at challenge gatherings, essentially. We wanted to uh, step away from the term hackathon, because it had, again, coding connotations and, and developer connotations. And we wanted to make it about the challenges that are within humanitarian open source, specifically within Ujihidi at the time's humanitarian open source. And we started to really, through the through the through this project, we started to really understand the problems, which are what I'm going to go into now. This is only really a selection of the problems. A lot of them are a lot more complex and deep than I've got time for today. And there are a lot of interconnections with them, but I'm gonna do them as best as I can today. So what are the problems within people that don't code or designers contributing to humanitarian open source? So there, there are two different perspectives. There's the problems from the kind of open source side of things, whether that's humanitarian open source or open source, and there's problems from the design community side of things as well. So one of the problems from the open source side of things whether or not you're humanitarian or not, is that most open source people involved in some kind of project, when you talk to them about potential design contributions, they understand design as logos, graphics, UI, things like that. And it's a hard, hard thing to hear as a designer that your your um, function, your role, your expertise is are these limited list of things that that are the understanding of of people with an open source. And it really, what it does is it leaves out a huge part of how design has become really integral part of building digital products and digital products that work really well for people that are using them over the commercial and corporate sector. And just like like, uh, coding, design has its own jargon. So what I was trying to unpick with these conversations with people that maintain or look after open source projects and why they understand design as logos and graphics was that a lot of the time the design jargon was playing a part in this. So the the, the term of like UX might actually not be best understood by people that are part of the coding world and the terms of service design versus interaction design, all these kinds of different things. uh, And all the terminology was playing into the lack of understanding of what design can actually do for an open source project. And the people that maintain things are the people and the people that own these or look after these open source projects are the ones that are kind of describing the work that needs to be done. And if designers aren't in that space where where they're participating how to describe the work being done and they're looking for, for people to describe this, then if they don't know the language of how to describe what they need from designers, there's still not going to be that... that communication of this is what we need from you or this is what we think we need from you or this is what we maybe might even might need from you and sometimes that fluffiness is something that people within open source looking after open source tend to shy away from we think we might need something to do with this kind of design it's not typically something that you would see um, described in an open source repository where all the different pieces of work are kept and I think um when I talk to the design community, or basically the community that doesn't code, about uh, this understanding of design, um, there's kind of like a response of both kind of horror but also kind of a bit of a mocking tone, and I really want us to move away from that because I don't think that this understanding of design is is useful for, for us to, to regard as like, they just don't get it. Um, it's really what it really tells me is that there's a lot of work to be done from the design community as well as the open source or technical community the people that code in how we share our understanding of what we can do for each other and help kind of break down those kind of jargon walls. So you can apply this basically to any kind of other function that isn't best understood by another function or a technical coding function. So you could say the same um, is like most OSS projects understand monitoring and evaluation as graphs and uh, Excel, which is largely untrue of the monitoring and evaluation side of things. There's a a lot more that goes into it. But if an open source project is particularly a humanitarian project and has a large monitoring and evaluation part of its tool, as Ishihidi's data collection uh, tool does, And if we're not accurately describing and understanding what we want from monitoring and evaluation contributions, then we're not actively encouraging and and participating in that that two-way communication of understanding what we're asking for and also how they can best contribute. So you can use uh, this kind of statement for a lot of different functions programs if you're part of the nonprofit program side of things, like understanding of how programs function impact um, grant writing even, all these kinds of different things within the humanitarian space, if they're not best understood by coders and or designers that want to participate in that funded humanitarian tool, they're really going to struggle to contribute to that if they can't understand it. And uh, this, this, uh, this one about issues being restrictive is kind of a tricky one because this not it's not always the case um and again um i don't want to assume that you know the terminology here so an issue is typically uh if you're outside of the the kind of coding or technical world it's, it's usually what the term that is used to describe a particular task or something that needs doing is is described as an issue. And there's even a section within GitHub when you look in a project called issues, basically, and it's where a list of different things that need to be done are described in varying levels of detail, depending on the project, basically. So some people have issues that encapsulate a very large piece of work, and sometimes people will create issues that encapsulate a very granular, this specific line of code needs to be changed. So even between different open source projects, sometimes different things are used in different ways, which, you know, makes things extra tricky. But it describes a task. And typically what I found as a designer looking around at open source to try and contribute to it is that a lot of issues are restrictive for the design design expertise really so something might say within an open source repo perhaps it's a tool that needs a form capture so collecting some kind of data through input fields and you might find that these issues are described as a design a form to capture new volunteers include name email and address you might think on the surface level that's quite easy that's quite simple surely somebody can design that but really what a designer is doing when they want to approach that kind of piece of work, if it was commercial or corporate, is they would be asking, why why is this form needed? Do you need all those data points? How should this be stored? So it's not just about particularly the designing of that form, it's about all the other stuff that encapsulates that piece of uh, interaction from somebody with a digital thing. And when issues within open source repos are that restrictive, uh, designers can't really inject themselves into that wider thinking if they don't already have the the mentoring or the uh, encouragement to start questioning things. I spoke to a lot of designers that want to contribute to some of these issues but the first hurdle is going actually I don't think they're asking for the right thing here. I think what they need to do is do another piece of work around this but how do I even start that conversation with this open source project. Even that step is something which is unfamiliar to design functions and other functions that don't code. So a lack of flexibility within open source projects is a real barrier. But going back to the two workshops that we did, the first ones before we funded this project in Berlin and Seattle, when you do a very open workshop about a tool, a humanitarian tool that needs improving, with um, a load of designers you get together and say, we've got these scenarios, we really need to improve this tool, there's a lack of focus and a lack of relevancy to actually what needs to be achieved within that technical project or that, tech, that tool within, the, within their set of tasks or their issues. So what we found in those first two uh, trial uh, events was that designers were coming with great ideas, but they were what we call, again, design jargon, uh, design fiction. So they were great ideas that maybe even incorporated things like AR or machine learning or connectivity things that didn't exist right now. So they were great ideas that solved the problems but they weren't directly relatable to any of the actual tangible issues within the repository or the project, the open source project. In that way they, they were contributions that kind of were in and of themselves kind of closed. They they were great ideas, but they would never be able to be executed within the next year to even 10 years. Um, So what we started to understand about bringing designers and subsequently other functions into the open source space is that there does need to be a balance between the restrictiveness of open source issues and how they're described right now, and this kind of almost free-for-all potential for design fiction, uh, not implementable. So there needs to be this middle ground between how do we bring these two uh, into the middle? So not too restrictive, but not too open uh, as far as focus goes. Uh, One of the main problems with designers and what we really struggle with is that it's just not part of design education. So what you'll find in a lot of typical coding education, whether it's formal or informal, is that open sources... Pretty much there as a, as a constant. If you're not using open source tools in some way, like so, a uh, maybe a, a open source like I think Vue Vue.js is maybe so some JavaScript kind of things that run different things are um, are open source. And typically, uh, a lot of coding students or developer software students will work with open source as part of their projects. Whereas this is. Largely absent from a design education, whether it's a formal or informal design education, and subsequently, within the working world, so moving on from education to the working world, I've heard this thing from from developers uh, that often the amount that they contribute to open source is regarded in how they are hired by certain companies or how they are like viewed their their competency whereas Even if you did have um, open source within design education and promoted open source contribution as part of a design process of growing your career, if the people that are hiring the designers kind of look at your open source contributions as a designer and go, what is that even then? Put it to one side and not regarding it as, oh, okay, I understand open source um, and why it's uh, beneficial for a designer to have this in their portfolio. Then we're not really connecting the dots between education and the working world. So this kind of... We could in, start introducing, and a lot of universities, there's a univers- university in Germany, in Darmstadt, that have started to introduce open source into design uh, designers' educational modules, which is great. But until the industry starts regarding that as valuable information experience, then we're still going to have a problem. And... Following on from it not being present in education, there's just this understanding, this lack of understanding from the design community of what open source really is or what it can be. So what I was saying a bit earlier around open source being kind of kind of almost the terminology is kind of we've heard of the terminology but we're not quite sure how it applies directly to something that we've used and when you start talking about things like Apache or things like Linux and some of these kind of very technical heavy things it kind of you kind of go oh no I'm not really interested in that but when you start talking about humanitarian open source they start to understand it a little bit more but in general Most designers don't really have a clue about what OSS and what it is and what it potentially can be. So, following on from that, if you then have either done the work to help designers and other functions understand what OSS is, or they already know what OSS is, then GitHub as it exists can be a barrier. So I was saying earlier on that one of the first things that designers might want to do, or even other functions might want to do within existing open source projects, is they might want to help redefine or better define what is being asked of within an issue. But that barrier of commenting, that barrier of interacting is still, still present. So GitHub itself and the language that GitHub uses, the interface that GitHub is, which has predominantly been used by people who code, is something that designers really need a lot of support, understanding and interacting with and getting over uh, that kind of barrier. And really starting to understand that contributions from a design side of things can be as simple as uploading something within a comment and that this kind of talk around pushing, pulling cloning, repositories, using a terminal, using commands, doesn't necessarily have to be part of how you contribute as a designer to open source. Um, So uh, the explanation of open source to a lot of designers tends to sound like work for free. This is a problem within a lot of different industries, but it's very prevalent within the design industry. You get told a lot um, as a young designer whether that's you know you're changing careers or whether you're coming out of university uh, that you can do work for exposure or you can do work um, you know that's that if you do this piece of work for me now then you can have more paid work in the future it's a real it's a real issue within the design uh, industry as as a um, as a like a basic problem but when you start to explain what open source is, it really starts to remind a lot of designers of that those conversations and the conversations that we're trying to move away from as a as an as an industry, around this kind of understanding that we do um, something that is creative and therefore are less valued. So you know you must enjoy what you do because it's creative. It's it's work and it's a job like most other things. But when you start to explain to designers what the benefits of open source are from, a, from historically the coding point of view, that you can learn new things, that you can contribute to humanitarian purposes, that you can collaborate across borders, because it's, it's fundamentally, a, open source is fundamentally a remote collaboration uh, kind of community. They start to understand it in better terms than work for free. So there's really another piece of work that needs to be done from the open source side of things and also the design community side of things around it's not, it, you are contributing in a voluntary manner but you know, these are the things that the, the technical coding community have benefited from and this is why they still participate in this practice and this is what we can gain from it as designers as well. Um, this one is again, it kind of gets into some technical jarg- jargon about version control. I'll give a very hopefully a very quick explanation of version control essentially with encoding you can have multiple different versions of something so that if somebody is working on the same part of something, you can work independently on the same part and then when you try and sort of merge it back into the main project, it will you'll get a series of different pieces of information that say oh this this piece has been changed here, but it's also been changed here. which would you like to?" merge or prioritise, or would you like to figure out which bits need to be changed so that it doesn't conflict? One of the problems that we have as designers and also other functions is that the tools that we use, our software, our creative software, which is why it's really important that we had Adobe on board for this, our software doesn't allow for version control. So you can have a designer working on a piece of open source contribution, and you could have another designer working on another piece of open source contribution to a project, and they could be working on the same part of the same tool and our software and our processes will not tell us when they, there are conflicts. So there's a, a fundamental lack of version control or at least automated version control for designers and potentially other functions as well. And it actually requires a lot more effort and onus on the designers' part of things to make sure that things don't conflict and that you're not um, re, like doing the same work as other people within contributions. Or if you are, then you're doing that in a way that doesn't kind of conflict. This also kind of goes into another really difficult problem um, that I'm only going to touch on right now because it's a very uh, polarizing topic. But there's this, there's this understanding that there is either there's a correct way to do code, as in it runs and it functions and it does what's intended. And then there are more elegant ways to write that code. So those are improvements, but there is a right way to to do code. Whereas with design, there's not necessarily as clear a right way to do design. And one of the problems that a lot of projects have found when they've tried to include open source design in in their projects, so we found this with Mozilla, and we also found this with Red Hat when we spoke to them, is that really the choice of whether something is the correct design to be implemented is a matter of how much background research that designer has done, um, opinion of who's approving it, um, who approves whether that design is, is finished if there isn't a designer on staff as, as such. So it becomes a really complicated issue. So not just about version control, about conflicts, but who would decide which of these two potentially conflicting pieces of work, uh, of which, which of those would get actually chosen. So you get into this real tricky territory about peer review and how to do that as designers because it's not necessarily something that we have templates for. Um, I'm going to go into some of the ways that we've solved these problems now, and I'm running out of time. Uh, I'm really really low on time, so I'm going to go quickly. So what is Open Design as a a project done to solve these problems, and what are we doing to try and solve these problems? One of the things that we're doing is connecting those already doing similar work. So one of the things that I found uh, starting this project is that there's actually a lot of different organisations doing work within specifically design communities in how to either get people involved in human- open humanitarian projects, whether they're open source software or just open projects, but then also people that are looking at the uh, technical side of design contribution. So you've got the Hack Hacks doing a lot of really amazing stuff over in The Hague around human rights activism and getting designers involved in how to build tools for them from the initial stage, global virtual design sprints, which are doing the same thing, but globally virtually. So looking at humanitarian projects and open projects for design contribution, open source design, which is largely trying to connect designers to the idea of open source. Um, And then OpenIDO um, is doing very similar kind of projects around humanitarian, uh, like collaborative remote projects. So you've got different people doing different things uh, around this space. So what can we do that was different? So, or what can we do that adds and helps and enhances these projects as well? So what we did for our events was we created a series of different um, reference documents that we used within the, the events that we began to run as part of the Open Design Project. So we uh, took all of these learnings from all these other organisations as well as our own research and we we did our methodology, which is open and you, know, you can read and contribute to that. We've got a framework for running workshops with designers and other functions around an open-source humanitarian tool that is adaptable to any humanitarian to- open-source tool, and it's all located on the, the Open Design Oshihidi GitHub repository here, so you can find all of that there, as well as all the different learnings that we, that we have, all the different evaluations that we did from our from our events. The other thing that we're doing is building relationships with more and diverse open source projects. So the pilot of the open design project was largely focused on an Ishihidi tool because we had access to that and we, we knew how to build for that so we can break down some of these barriers. But one of the real challenges now for the next phase of how to include designers in humanitarian open source is finding more humanitarian open source projects. So I'm in uh, talking with a number of different open source projects uh, now about how to apply the, this framework and methodology to their tools and what, I, what is needed when you, when you don't have an innate knowledge like I did of the Ushahidi tools for building these workshops for. So starting to build up a, a real, a list of all these different kinds of open source humanitarian projects that w- are ready and want to participate in a design contributions and have design contributions. And we did uh, these pilot events. So these this is where we tested our framework and methodology. So we did one in India, in ben- Bangalore. We did one in uh, Taiwan, Taipei. Uh, Kenya, uh, Nairobi is due this year, uh, as is uh, London, UK. Um, the focus of Bangalore was around the Kerala floods, and we worked really closely uh, with local charities there on on our crisis communication tool, 10 about how... Uh, Open design contributions can be made to the 10 crisis communication tool, but very relevant to that design knowledge base. So going into India with an Indian use case. Uh, For Taipei, we looked at typhoons and the effect that it had on rural farming communities and natural disasters within that. And again, using 10 as the, the case study. With Nairobi, we're planning on doing it around terrorist attacks. And with London, we really wanna focus on the the Grenfell Tower fires and how that crisis communication tool could be made better through open design contributions and benefit um, and make better these these kinds of um, crises. So what can designers do to improve that tool within these use cases? And within 2020, we've got a number of different cities, a number of different organizations that wanna get more involved with the idea of open source design contributions for their tooling and also Ishihidi's tooling. If you're interested in the kinds of activities that we do within the open design workshops, they're all included on the open repository, but they're largely things that are very accessible to um, designers and people that haven't done design before. As I said earlier on, we got developers, we got product managers, lots of different functions participating in um, in these workshops. And one of the things that we believe as the open design project is that any function is participates in the design process while you might not regard yourself as a designer you are actively influencing the design process by participating in these activities so we don't close our doors to any other functions that aren't a design function we encourage them and encourage them to participate in these design activities so things like empathy mapping defining problems ideation storyboarding and sketching and prototyping So our aim for the Open Design Project uh, going forward as the person that is still actively involved in in contributing to this in an open source way is increasing and sustaining contributions, making sure that 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 sustainability is built into open source contributions from a design point of view, supporting the design community in all the different ways that I described in the different problems that we're facing, the education, how it's regarded in the workplace, uh, jargon, all these kinds of different things. And building understanding and education between the design and OSS community. So making sure that there's that two-way sharing of uh, what the goals are of the open source versus what what design can offer the open source. There's lots of other things that I could talk about around the Open Design Project um, and how it could potentially apply to other, other functions as well. And there's also a number of different things that I could talk about about the problems of, of humanitarian open source. But that's all we have time for today. Um, I'd like to say thank you for listening. If you want to check out the project again, it's on the GitHub repository there, and we have some social media things. But I think we've got some time for questions. Brief time. Thank you. Yeah,
0: we've got time for a couple of questions. So um, I'm going to read one from Twitter first. Oh, OK. While people are thinking yes. there's up in the room. So I've got one from Bonnie saying... Uh, any examples of how the learnings translate into impact on the ground? Mm. I.e. did the tool manage to engage with more hard-to-reach groups?
1: So one of the things that we found really, really early on within the Open Design Project was there... So the first, the first um, test events didn't include people that were beneficiaries of the humanitarian open source, right? They were... Um, they were pilots, they were testing whether or not design communities coalesced around an idea. What was absolutely critical and essential to the subsequent events in Bangalore and Taipei and London and uh, Nairobi was that you include your beneficiaries or your users within the process, within the workshop. So what we what we include within every workshop, and we would even work this into other open source uh, tools, is... Um, Within Bangalore, we had somebody that done um, work within the rural communities on the ground uh, there to to talk about whether or not the solutions that designers were coming up with to the issues that they were working on, the challenges, were actually going to work within the field. What what was the actual impact going to be? Was this going to work and what they needed to do to iterate and improve on what they came up with in the workshop? And in Taipei, it was the same. We invited uh, farmers farmers and people that have coordinated volunteer efforts in crisis. So these were beneficiaries that were beneficiaries of crisis, the crisis communication OSS. Um, so what we were actively doing, and one of the things that actually designers find the most, um, what's the word, like, <laughs> the most like uh, enticing about participating in these workshops was the connection that they, and the opportunity to work directly with people that were affected by the software they were improving. That was one of the biggest drivers for participating in open source, not only often from a coding perspective, but from a design perspective, it was about, I'm going to this event, I'm offering my skills, but also I get to understand and experience what it's like to be a farmer in rural uh, Taiwan hit by a typhoon and how I can try and help solve those problems with my design skills. And that was really the big draw. So one of the tricky things that the project needs to do cyclically is have those design contributions merged into the software and actually tested. So one of the things that we work on within the next set of workshops that would follow on are like how the designers would go out and do open source user testing. And we offer uh, documentation and examples of um, uh, how to do user testing Uh, So they could do open source user testing for your tool to make sure that, you know, it's doing what it's intended to. But the real test will be when the open design project comes full full circle in that the design contributions from the workshops are iterated on, gotten to a point where they want to be implemented, they're implemented in the software and then they're used. And that will be like how you can measure the impact of this kind of activity.
0: I hope that. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, do we have any questions in the room? I think we've got a chance for, for one more because we haven't got a huge amount of time. One here? Uh, if you could talk into the mic so people on the live stream can hear you. But Hello, I'm, I'm Richard, project manager. I try to adapt my question, which has been partially partly, uh, answered by your uh, your contributions uh, so far. I try to adapt it to, to the vocabulary that you're using. Okay. Uh, so how do you know that you're, what you're doing is actually necessary and useful there is a make or buy decision uh, how do you know that what you're designing has mm. not uh, already been designed 20 years ago mm. by our open street maps via graphics uh, geography information systems and not know do you know uh, how do you know that it doesn't exist already
1: yeah that's a really it's a really tricky problem from this project's point of view i mean it's a tricky problem from a humanitarian open source or humanitarian technology point of view right it's like i I don't work for Ushahidi anymore, but there are things that do what Ushahidi's tool does as well. There are a number of different things, and there are a number of different projects that also Ushahidi relies on, so it relies on OpenStreetMap as the map-based layer. Right. Yeah, yeah, it does, yeah, yeah. Or um, it's a, one of the options within the data collection tool. Um, I think that you can use map box layers as well. Um, don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure you do it. Anyway, um, one of the biggest problems that is that... The open source or humanitarian or any kind of commercial companies even, one of the problems that they will never or is knowing whether or not what they've built is doing the same thing that something else is being built, uh, that's been built. Um, Or is it different enough? Um, that it's, you know, useful in a different way, right? Or is it more useful over here, even though it does the same thing as something that's more used over there? It's, it's a tricky problem within technology in general, what to use and how to use it. Within this project, it's particularly difficult because of the problem of something like, if you have a challenge around a specific part of the temporal. tool, uh, let's let's talk about how people are messaged. Um, I might know as somebody that's been working on that tool for a year, two years, that we tried that and we talked about that internally, or we talked about that a year ago, or we talked about that, blah, 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 this minute, this many moons ago and either the technology stack wasn't ready for it or it wasn't funded, and a number of different reasons, it didn't get designed and developed. But if you're engaging with designers that are coming up with the same solutions, and wanting to contribute those solutions, saying, oh, we can solve this by doing this. And then you go back and say, oh, actually we tried that. Um, it didn't work for these reasons. I don't think that there is a perfect solution to this other than one of the things that we identified was, and when I spoke to the UNHCR about this project, they said it's all well and good if you have, like, group of designers that are ins- hugely enthusiastic about contributing to the UNHCR like tool base and you know we get a flood of all these designs great fantastic but what if we don't have the infrastructure of which to prioritise, manage, decide what what actually fits. A lot of these designers might not have an innate or inherent knowledge about refugees. We want them to have a base knowledge of refugees. How do we give them that or how do they learn that? Um, Same with the Shihidi's tools. Like how do you very quickly within a workshop setting uh, potentially give them designers all of the different information that they might need to know about a crisis scenario in Kenya as opposed to globally. So there's so many different variables. There are some kind of solutions that have been happening. One of the, the organisations, uh, simple.org, has been doing open, open source design contributions to their tool for a number of years. Um, and what they do is they... It's, usually it's how they describe the tasks that they need. And how they prioritize them. So they have tasks that could be done by any designer, so doesn't don't require maybe an inherent knowledge of their tool and the history of their tool, which is around uh, healthcare in like remote areas or the global south, basically. Um, but then they will also have tasks which they will label and start to talk about like you need to kind of understand what healthcare in rural India is like to be able to contribute to this or you know we require you to have an understanding of this before you can really tackle this problem so it's tricky because designers they want to contribute they want to do stuff you know that helps the humanitarian tool but they also need that educational base or they need that they need that front load of information Some of the ways that you can, and we want to try and fix this, is through documentation, great documentation. One of the things I did before leaving Ushahidi was create a huge amount of design contribution documentation, which was largely sort of developer-y speak, but hopefully is still accessible to designers. But there's not a... There's not a perfect solution right now about whether a designer would come through this process, contribute something that has been tried before or that something else does without necessarily having that um, feedback from the OSS like, oh, yeah, we tried that. Um, Or, you know, so there's a lot of different problems within your question, but we have been thinking about
0: them, how to solve them. Thank you. I'm really sorry. We don't have time for any any more questions. So apologies if you had one waiting. Um, We don't have a lunchtime lecture next week, uh, so we'll be back on the 31st. So please join us again then. But in the meantime, uh, please join me in thanking Ariel for coming along today for such a great talk. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to a Friday Lunchtime Lecture, brought to you by the Open Data Institute.